You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. Greetings to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, we're coming up on part three of our Brandon Mayfield Madrid train bombing uh, air uh, series of episodes, revisiting things uh, that we may have misheard or misunderstood over the years. I think we've both come across stuff now that that uh, surprised us or uh, wasn't quite what we actually thought was happening. Um, and for anyone right. following along, we're, we're, uh, we're reading through the Office of the Inspector General report, both the executive summary and then the you know the full unabridged report. Well, with the, the redactions in there, but you know, you know what I mean. So right. wh- where are we at, Glenn? Right. So last time we left, um, the defense expert hired by Mayfield had agreed with the FBI, and then went to go testify in a hearing. Basically, and even he, and Moses talked about this in his presentation at the IAI. I mean, he got this, and I think he was just about to go out of town as well. I don't remember now if that had to do with him going out of town to testify in the hearing, or any. He he said I didn't have a lot of time to to sit with this. I basically only had a day or two, you know, to a day to look at it and then write up the report and then you know give those conclusions. So I mean, he was under the gun to begin with, and as as an uh, independent expert myself when i get cases in i've been in that position before it's a it's a horrible position to be in you know where you have to give a quick conclusion and sometimes i have to say and especially you know in the beginning i just i would just do it i would just okay i'll I'll do that for you i've had to come back and say well i'm sorry you'll have to hire another expert or i've had to basically say in not so polite words your emergency is not my problem the <laughs> fact that you've waited right. to the very end to do this that's not that's not my problem i'm sorry i didn't try to say it professionally and kindly but in the beginning i would bend over backwards to help but that's exactly the position he got put in Here's this very complex case. Make a decision right away. And unfortunately, made the wrong decision. Because as we now know, after he did testify, there was an identification. And so now you have the three FBI examiners and uh, the defense expert saying it's an ident. An hour or two later, the Spanish police call the FBI and say, okay, we've matched it to this individual Daoud. Um, first name is O. I don't remember now. It just came to me. It's, his first name starts with an O. It is his last name. It's O something Daoud. Oh, Nani, um, I want to say. Yeah. Yep. Something like that. And um, so they inform him they've made this identification. So now at this point, of course, the FBI goes back. Um, they get the Prince of Daoud. The, the Spanish police send them to the FBI. Now the FBI starts looking at this. And now they travel back to Spain and meet with those examiners and now they're in a they're in a pickle and this is where the story gets very very interesting because this is what i did not know but now it's beginning to make sense because right in another week or so right around this time is when i went to swigfast the fbi and we were getting um getting these very mixed messages from the fbi 
because the FBI basically looks at the Prince of Daoud, looks at the Prince of Mayfield to LP-17 and says it could be a match to either. There are similarities and differences in both of these. And because we can't identify Mayfield now, because it could also be identified to Daoud, could equally likely be either one, it's now no value. Because remember, they're an approach one system at this time, hard and fast approach one. If you can't identify a person, especially a single person, well, then it must be no value. So this is where the no value comes from. I'm going to read this excerpt from the report because it, it has everything in there. As this controversy burgeoned, the LP unit supervisory staff began analyzing the latent printing question and many differing opinions arose. Some were convinced the latent print belonged to Mr. Mayfield. Others were equally convinced the latent print belonged to Daoud. Obviously, since fingerprints are unique and can only be attributed to a single source, only one position can be correct. Still, others thought the latent print was actually two prints overlaid and that one portion belonged to Mr. Mayfield and the other belonged to Daoud. Each camp, in reaching their conclusion, noted the similarities between the latent print and respective known prints that were difficult to explain. That was fascinating that was a whole aspect of this that i didn't realize but now thinking about what we heard of a time at Swigfast, that was exactly why what they kept saying is well now we think it's no value and that no conclusion should be reached but i didn't get this background hearing this now i know why those fbi examiners were saying and we think no conclusion should be rendered because they had disagreement in their agency to do different people wow yeah, and that's, I mean, it seems kind of foreign to me anyway, but that's, I understand that's how, especially back then they worked. If you, I mean, if you, basically if you can't identify it, then it must be no value. Right. Um, which is a, a difficult, and even now I think they, they, you know, acknowledge that it's a difficult position to be in because you can't really know that you can identify it until after you identify it. So the only time you can just determine it to be of value is after you're done identifying it. So it, it, it's a very strange, it kind of, le- the, the setup in this method kind of leads down strange paths in, in these not so common cases where you kind of get stuck down this weird, this weird alley of, of not knowing what to do next. Yeah, I mean, you make this very strong prediction up front that's a value for identification that if presented with the proper knowns, right. I will be able to identify this. So now they're in this very weird position that, well, they're presented with the knowns, the knowns are fine, but now they can't, they can't make a decision. You've got people within the agency who are going one way and the other. And, you know, they, they all admit that there are differences. So here's another little quote, because this is where I think the confusion for me came in. The one constant in all of their arguments was that the latent print had multiple separations. The triple tap. I mean, I I just, I'm saying the triple tap. Right. Multiple separations. In other words, the latent print was divided by many lines of demarcation, possibly caused by the creases in the plastic bag, multiple touches by one or more fingers, or both. And that's where I kept hearing the triple tap was now becoming the explanation for these differences but i hadn't seen 
the March 22 chart that was weeks before this, not using any of those differences that were up in the other areas and just focusing on the lower portion. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. So, the you know, the OIG report, I, and I think, I think is really good because they basically say, what do you expect? The FBI has never made a mistake before. And they're trying to basically come up with a neutral position that doesn't put them in having to admit to having made a mistake. You've now presented them with other nat- matching thing, but yet at the same time, they've already committed. They, they're all in. They're all, their whole pot is all in on Mayfield. And now you present them with this other possibility. It's it kind of it's it's understandable. Oh, well, let's just go to no. Let's just call it no value. We shouldn't have made a conclusion from the beginning. No harm, no foul. Okay, we we made a mistake uh, in in that we gave an opinion at all. And you can kind of see that once they were looking at the other impression, it, it is an untenable position to be in, especially if there's this possibility that we might be able to get out by saying. Well, this latent print is just one of those that could actually equally match either. Ugh. Which, it also makes sense that they didn't come out and say that, you know, in those words, because that's that's not something right. that latent print people want to or ever do say. That, you know, oh, it could be either of these people. Well, <laughs> I, I've got some good close non-matches that you can't find differences. That in small areas, in small areas, right. you can't find differences. So, you know, at, we didn't have that at that time. We didn't have a right. knowledge I APHIS or the close non-matches, and they're in a position that, frankly, they had never been in before. So right. some of the, the backpedaling and some of the you know, little nuanced arguments that were coming out, you can... You, the the OIG explores that, and I think the OIG puts their finger right on it that they're in a they're in a tough spot, and no value might be their way out. Right. Um, okay. Not, not, I mean, jumping it's kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but but um, uh, so I wasn't there for the initial uh, uh, presentations that that the defense expert uh, Ken Moses gave uh, at the I the one you said was was packed with people. Um, and, uh, what, what I have seen is, is a couple years ago, um, uh, front, uh, <laughs> uh, P- I know what you're going to bring up, uh, PBS, uh, frontline, uh, had a, had a special about forensics under fire, uh, basically. I can't remember exactly what the name of the episode's called, but, uh, um, I thought it was forensics under fire. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's it. Uh, but they talk about lots of different forensic disciplines uh under fire uh hair comparisons uh i think they do bullet lead bullet lead uh, odontology and then latent prints and they interview um uh, ken moses about the mayfield case and uh there's a little bit in there from melissa gish from the fbi yes and he makes a few statements that had me sighing because it, it it's uh, i'm not sure if he's backpedaling or or trying to kind of make things out differently than what they were at the time um but it, it, it kind of fits into what you were saying here about about you know this whole no value thing or having this explanation uh basically saying that um 
up until this time, no one had ever seen this many points in similarity between two impressions before, essentially those, these 15 points. So at the time, and this is where it really gets me, the, it was, the decision was correct, but now knowing what we know now, it's now incorrect. Uh, and this, this comparison changed what was viewed as sufficient for an ID. Uh, where before we thought it was enough, but now it's not enough. And, and I, I thought that was completely missing the point about how distortion and pattern force and IAFIS searches all played into things and not this whole point counting scenario that it sounds like. And, and again, who knows how uh, Frontline edited his comments down and what he he said in full in the interview, but... Um, that just had me shaking my head quite a bit. Well, you you touch on a couple of things that are a little, somewhat personal to me. Um, I agree that we don't know what he actually said during these interviews. I've done these interviews. You're there for two hours, and they get one minute you know total out of everything that you you said, and they edit it together. And sometimes they they have their own narrative they're trying to tell. Yep. So we don't know what he actually said. I know what he said in that room with hundreds of other people because when I sat there in 2004 and I listened to what he said, I went, that makes sense. That's a human thing. And he did talk about the perfect storm of human error coming together. Kept using that phrase, the perfect storm. Right. And it was the perfect storm in many ways. But he also said, I rushed through my exam. I didn't listen to that voice inside my head. I did take into account the FBI opinions. I knew those examiners. I was looking at the report, and I knew their signatures. You know, all those, all those kinds of things. That makes sense to me. When I watched that Frontline episode, it did not make sense. In fact, it's he said things in that episode, or at least. Things They aired things or they portrayed certain things, I don't know what he actually said, that were different than he said 10 years before that. Now, I don't know if 10 years later he has a different recall, a different view of everything, but when I watched that episode, I know many other people reacted the same way. And if they had seen the previous one, that wasn't what he said in 2004. And unfortunately, it rang true in 2004. It rang human. It... It touched you. It made you feel like, oh, yeah, that would be a really crappy position to be in. Yeah. I'm sorry he got put in that position. And, wow, what a, you know, what, what, you're having a bad day and <laughs> it's, it, it's an error. Whereas in 10 years later on the front line, it was kind of wasn't my fault. You know, I just happened to get a, a close down match. Anyone else would have made this mistake. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it it really was, like you said, it's not an error. It, anyone would have done this. It wasn't my fault. It didn't have the same, it didn't have the, the same ring, and there were things that were said that I didn't agree with in the two, you know, later, 10 years later right. episode. So, um, yeah, I I would love to talk to Ken about this. I, we should maybe, if, if Ken listens, hey, please email us, call us. Look, love to talk about this. See what, you know, see what was actually said. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that one was very personal because I had watched both, and that first one for 10 years had rung true to me, and I often did talk about it in class, but some of the things that he said in that that anyone can really understand if you're a, a fingerprint examiner. Right. Okay. All right, so moving on from there. Um, now, 
at this point when the FBI says, hey, we think we've, or sorry, the Spanish police have said, hey, we think we've got this guy. Now the FBI goes over to Spain. They meet with them again. A, a week or so later, they declare uh, latent print 17 to be no value now. And at this point, the judge in this case is very frustrated and just dismisses the charges against Mayfield and just drops the whole case. Now, the FBI has to sort everything out and figure out if they made a mistake or not. And this goes on literally for weeks. Uh, the next month, they go in June, they go back to, to Spain, meet with them again. At this point now, I, I think is when they're actually, um, I think at this point, they're now looking at the evidence or maybe they did on the 22nd. I, I I think it was maybe the, in June on the 9th when they were now looking at the original evidence and they're, they're oh yeah, because that's when the after, that's when the SWIG thing was. They had just come back from Spain. So we got to see at SWIG the images, the Spanish police images, and the they have these photographs that really were very clear of the latent print. You could see that my colleague Josh was right. Those ridges went continuously through that area. And the Spanish police photos were a little sharper, a little clearer than the digital images that had been given out. And I have not seen those images since the FBI, or uh, since Wigfast. And those images really were, were very nice. I, I, I wish those images would be released. And... Um, and so it, then the next month, the FBI turns around and says, no, we we made a mistake. Uh, Daoud is the source of latent fingerprint 17, and they also found another print on the bag that they identified as Daoud's. And so July 16th is when they come out and say, we made a mistake. And then it's a month later, or actually just a few weeks later, that the uh, IAI happens that, I think that August 4th it was, right. in uh, St. Louis, 2004. And so it really is just a couple of weeks later when we get to go and hear Moses's and, the, and Steve Meager from the FBI talk about the case. Okay. Wow. So that's the timeline. Now, the report does a beautiful job of talking about uh, contributions to the case, and I hope we have enough time to get through these, but maybe not. Maybe we'll be going. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, they, they, re, they list six reasons as the cause of the Mayfield error. So I'll list these off, and then we'll, we'll break them down a little right. bit. The first is exactly what you've already talked about, Eric, the unusual similarity of the prints. The OIG report says this is a close non-match, and I... I agree. There are features that are in similarity. There are some differences, but there are a large number, and certainly for the FBI at that time, more than eight that are in agreement from two different people. Okay. The second, uh, second cause is that there is bias from the exemplar prints, the circular reasoning, using the exemplars to pull out detail from the latent print, working backwards through ACE in a circular fashion, uh, to use the clearer exemplars to find features in the latent. They had not marked things out uh, using a lin more linear process. So they didn't mark you know, all the features out. They did mark features in IAFIS because they had to select features to search, but they only had the seven that they searched off, found that eighth one. And then at that point, I don't know where the other seven came in to make their 15. Did they use the exemplar print to find those? 15 and to get the level 3 detail i'm assuming based on the report that's exactly what happened yeah it that's looks for those i mean you got those those third level detail in the middle but then i think the other you know, those additional eight looks like they're all kind of from the edge um yeah so 
not not search but then later use the exemplar to right. quote unquote find them right so that would be the second reason for the the mayfield error the third is faulty reliance on level three detail so they had you know they hadn't marked it out during the analysis phase they were using the exemplars and like you said you know there's a couple of coincidental things and that that are there and then some things you don't see you know in hindsight um knowing that it's an error but in their mind these coincidental level three characteristics they placed a lot of weight on them and again in speaking with the spanish police they attribute you know their use of level three as a regiology approach as the spanish police were as, as we might say not as sophisticated in their mind because they were quote-unquote, you know, point counters or needed a minimum number of points, which I think would have been 10 to 12 at the time for the Spanish police. The fourth reason is inadequate explanation for the differences, that they didn't have, you know, they were talking about triple taps and breaks in the bag and creases in the bag and then stretching as well because it's a plastic bag, all these other different explanations that might explain the differences other than they're not the same person. Right. Uh, right. The fifth explanation was the failure to assess the poor quality of the similarities, that even what they had matching wasn't real great. I mean, you even talked about that yourself when you were comparing them back and forth, that some of these features, it's not real clear what's being marked or what the feature is. Um, the report talks about how the types differ, that in malatent it appears to be a bifurcation, but in Manon it's a, it, it's a ridge ending, that some of those considerations were not given when doing the comparison. I thought that was pretty interesting. I wanted to get your, your take on that because sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. Well, exactly. And, and I mean, that's where it kind of goes down to the clarity. Um, you know, if you have a, a solid, clear ending but and the exemplar is a solid, clear bifurcation, then that's more worrisome if, than if both of them are, are of lower quality and, and more smudgy. But then again, if they are lower quality, more smudgy, then you would want more overall points throughout the entire print to match before then you'd you'd make that call. So, uh, especially a lot of these points that didn't quite line up, you know, started being towards the edge uh, of the latent, started to, you know, which is definitely lower quality, all these little tiny gaps, which may have been marked as, as points, uh, because of the surface that it was on, you know, more and more and more kind of things, you know, um, to, to start worrying about. Uh, that also reminds me a lot of the of an example I have in in uh, both the the workshop class that I do at the IEI and then also the three day class I teach, where it, it's a you know it's an erroneous ID, it's a close non match. Uh, but so many people get it wrong, and you know it comes down to a lot of times that kind of thing. There's these, there's this super clear ridge ending that in the knowns is just a bifurcation, and and explaining away that and all this other stuff to then you know, make that mistake. So yeah, it's one of those things that it matters, but you're also trained that it, it sometimes it doesn't matter, right? And and that is a tough one. I mean, it's it's an issue that's come up before with myself and Cedric Newman and Christoph Shampo when you know, they're trying to assess this in the fingerprint statistical models, where you know some of the early models will put a lot of weight on those on those differences. 
And I would try to explain it as an examiner. No, 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 we, we really dismiss those differences and not that important, except in the cases where they're actually really important. <laughs> and it's, it's not, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult to put your finger on it when that matters or not. And, and maybe one of the things I'm coming to accept over, over time is that, well, maybe, maybe we overvalue minutia in general and maybe need to not put um uh, maybe each feature if it, if it isn't very clear and you don't have type to rely on maybe i should be pulling back a little bit on the general weight that i put to minutia and what i guess what i'm saying is that when i don't have type which i almost never have type that i fully rely on maybe i'm on on a daily basis just putting a little too much weight on each feature that i should pull it back a little bit and be and just recognize it doesn't have that level of specificity because you don't have the type. I don't know. I, I struggle with that a bit, but I don't have a great answer. Well, a couple other things on that is, is and this is the print in the class that I'm talking about, um, is sometimes when you're not sure what color you're dealing with, if you're dealing with black ridges or white ridges, you know, that could be the basis of it is, oh, mm -hmm. it looks like a an ending here and a bifurcation here because this is actually color reversed. And if I flip it now, it's the same. But, you know, getting back to that, that, you know, how, how much do you weight this print? How great would it be that, um, you know, going into all this, that when you're finally making your decision, you can then be presented with information as to, uh, how, you know, how you marked it originally. And then if you moved the point, not just that you, you know, deleted it or added it in, uh, but that you, that you moved it and changed its type. Uh, you know, that's going back to way early discussion about an amazingly perfect uh, computer program uh, for late print examinations that would track and then relay this information, you know, back to you as you're going into your decision that, you know, maybe you changed, you know, you know all this stuff and, and that could help you, um, you know, in making that decision and help avoid that error. Yeah, alert you that you're you are changing an inordinate amount of detail from right. your analysis phase. It wasn't just one point where everything oh, okay, everything else matches up, and I just moved this one point over, and yeah, I can see it. It was everything got moved a little bit, um, yeah. and, and and that is a more of an alarming thing. Yeah. All right, and so then the the sixth cause for the Mayfield error was the failure to re-examine latent fingerprint 17 after getting the Spanish police, which we touched on a little bit earlier in the episodes. But, you know, may have also been a factor, the fact that at this point they knew Mayfield's background and religion and these other things. And that might have contributed or, you know, to some extent, it's, it's not real clear. The, the report says we don't know, but may have been a, a factor. It's much harder to tell. Okay, so um, a few of the things that I, I, I did want to talk about uh, for the, the the causes, you know, there are no doubt. There's no doubt that there are you know a number of similarities between the two, but one of the things that I found really really fascinating were the markups of the differences and the similarities that they have in the report, and I, I think it's worth. We're seeing some of those, and they talk about how they use the the exemplars, and they use the exemplars to find similarities, but then also use the exemplars for their circular reasoning to dismiss various differences and things. And you know, one of the quotes in there, 
In other words, after seeing the Mayfield prints, Green changed the interpretation. Green was one of the examiners. Uh, changed the interpretation of five of his original seven points in type or location, which is exactly what you're just talking about, Eric, five of seven of them, with the result that the five points were reinterpreted now to be more consistent with the Mayfield exemplar. And that, that's exactly what you just said. Yeah, which is definitely something to be you know, concerned about. Uh, the, the downside of this, I, I think, granted, there are definitely some upsides from, from uh, the, this, this misidentification, the, the greatest being, of course, the, the black box study coming directly from uh, this mistake happening. And without this, we would never have had that. But one of the things I know the FBI is still dealing with is this linear ACE model uh, that is mm-hmm. written into their protocols that they're going to follow uh, ACE as the comparison you know, framework in a linear way. Uh, and that has all sorts of implications in how they document their comparisons. And um, the, the I think the downside of this is that this whole idea of a circular ACE uh, going back and, and revisiting the analysis stage is absolutely essential when you're uh, when you're dealing on the other side with exclusion decisions. Uh, mm. you know, we've talked about mm. this before, and um, and that's kind of one of the the big things that came out of the black box as well is this is this uh, you know great inaccuracy on the exclusion side, and I think a lot of that can be traced back to the the, the concept that no, you're just going to go through this process once straight through and there's not going to be this reanalysis where you reconsider and move points around um, in the white box study in particular especially I think it was in the, the you have to go into the appendix to dig this out there is a, a direct correlation that if you don't move or add or uh, or delete minutiae from the analysis stage you have a greater chance of having an erroneous exclusion. Uh, right. So, yep, we we talked about that when we looked at the white box two, right? Um, plus one paper that uh, they did, and we also talked about that when we when we just discussed Cedric's uh, NIJ sufficiency, where we saw the same thing. Examiners were moving around certain features, and if they didn't, that could potentially, like you said, well, they, the white box was clear. If they didn't move right. it around, you had a higher false negative rate. And so we saw in both stu- in both studies that if they did, it didn't always lead to an erroneous ID. But whenever there was an erroneous ID, guess what? They had moved features all around, like a whole bunch, right? So right, it it, it is a is a bit of a catch twenty two where you know, if, but maybe the the real takeaway is is that not to not move them all ever or not to move them you know every single time. But to be aware of when you're moving it and to revisit that information before you make your final decision. Right. Right. All right. So um, going into those causes a little bit more, um, you know, there was this um, faulty reliance on level three detail. The report talks about uh, selective cherry picking of only those level three details that seem to support the identification while dismissing all level three details uh, elsewhere in the print you know, falls short of fair reasoning. And the thing with me, and this is this is a personal professional opinion, feel free to disagree. I don't think the quality of the image is useful at all for any level three detail. And I know, you know, you said, well there's a, a couple of things there. I don't I don't like using level three at all in images like that. I unless no. they are 
unbelievably clear images. I would not touch the level three detail. Coincidental or not, I, I could care less. It just if if you can't use it all for the identification as well as the exclusion, then I've got I've got some issues with it. Well, and I think level three detail is is basically useless for exclusions, but uh, for the identification part of it, yeah, it's clearly what they did is they just looked for coincidental matches and then and then started to line them up. Um, yeah, and. For level three, totally agree. You're just going to need a better latent um, overall to be able to use that. And there's now at least one paper out, and I'm blanking on the author right now, that details in which level three detail is the most reliable to uh, uh, to use. And it's it's because all th- level three detail isn't created the same. Uh, some is more reliably reproduced uh, in you know touch to touch than others, and uh, you know, that's emphasized uh, in that paper. While here, it was just, oh, here's some stuff that looks good, and taking that over. But yeah, having um, a specific region of level three detail or the entire print, you know, covered in in clear level three detail, is really what's important. And, and this one, obviously, uh, is not that, and wouldn't really be expected on this type of surface uh, when you've got all these gaps in the print. Right. Okay. Um, so moving on to number four, uh, one of the things about the differences and uh, you know inadequate explanations for differences, and I have to say, this was something I remember from Mos- Ken Moses's talk because I hadn't seen this until he presented this, and when I saw this, I went, "Wow, that 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 that's huge." So the image, if you go and you look at the Mayfield image, everyone will always see the same image. And the images you've even been seeing so far, Eric, in the OIG report, it's always the same image of the latent print. But the report has somewhere later in there, I don't have the page in front of me, um, but I'm looking at the images. Somewhere they actually show the entire Mayfield latent print, which anytime you ever see it, in someone's presentation, it's always the cropped version. Right. There is the expanded version, and this one has always been critical to me because when Moses had it in his presentation, you could see it right away. If you see the full latent print, the full latent print actually has the first section of the joint, the medial joint, um, the flange. And because it's got some of the joint ridge detail, in the latent print, it's actually it bows downwards. I don't know concave it's kind of concave okay like a contact like a contact lens sitting on the table that it's it's it the ridge it bows in that way like a bowl or a contact lens but when you look at mayfield's military exemplar not the fbi iafis card but the military exemplar that got the ridge detail from his joint it actually is going the other way it's if the other one's what when I say concave, well, then the other one's a little more convex. And so the ridge flow and path through the joint is different. And that is a really clear difference that I think is often overlooked between the two, but the ridge flow is not right in the joint. And I, th- I think it's really telling that whenever you see that latent print, the joint is often cropped out. Right. And this is something I have seen in class over and over and over and over again. When I give a latent print to examiners and I say, mark up all the ridge detail, I will often see examiners just go right to that first crease, the joint crease, and just stop. And I'll walk past and go, 
you're not done. And they'll go, oh, did you want me to mark the joint too? Like, yeah, I said mark all the ridge detail. It's this weird psychological thing that I find examiners often stop at the joint and do not do anything with information in the joint. They'll start going through aphis and they'll mark all these, you know, minutia, but then stop right there at the joint. And I, and I, there, I, there's something psychological about it. And I kind of feel like some of that happened in the Mayfield case from all the images and all the markings and even that March 22 that they sent over to the Spanish police, guess what? Stops at the joint. Right. It it seems like everyone ignored, well, not everyone, it just seems like I often see examiners ignoring joint information and yet in several cases that I have where there are close non-matches, it's the joint that allows you to go, oh, they're from different sources. Yep. No, I, I that's... <laughs> Uh, same thing with 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 one of my examples as well, but uh, even more so, um, it's it's a kind of a combination of things. You know, one, you know, the exemplars, you know, often don't have uh, information down to the joint, uh, and or uh, APHIS systems, you know, often don't uh, encode uh, below the joint, uh, and then finally, it's the whole you know jump in the gap, you know, or we're looking for ridge detail uh, in correspondence, but also in sequence. And since you can't necessarily, or you know, very often count ridges across that that crease, then it's this you know natural boundary uh, of what you can count to. Um, That's why I think it is more. I, th- I think it's right. more of examiners just ignore that because they can't get that sequential count if they were taught that way. Right. Not, not that there's still not good information down there or stuff that we're you're like, oh, well, you know, I know this is all, you know, one touch just because there's this gap. You know, I should look at this too. I think you can find the same thing as if you had a, uh, an, you know, an artificial break because of the surface that the print is on, you know, between the pattern area and the tip. And the tip only has maybe, you know, three, four points. You probably get the same thing yeah. of people not marking minu- you know, minutia up there because that is basically not going to be helpful for the main part of the comparison. Uh, but right. it could still be very valuable. Okay. So the the report also talks about some other miscellaneous factors to consider as well. And these are, these are more minor things, but it's worth going through for just a, a second here. So some of the other factors that may have contributed to the FBI's error was a lack of clear standard for identifications in ACE-V, which after the Mayfield error, they had to really revisit their policies and their approaches, and a lot changed in how, like you said, in how they conduct exams at the FBI. Oh, yeah. I, I, think it, I think in many ways for the better, as well as the entire profession had to double down and you know look at our, our standards, and I think that helped everybody. Lack of independence during verification. They certainly didn't have blind verification at that time. A lot of agencies didn't. That was one of those knee-jerk things that after Mayfield, a lot of agencies came back and you know, said, okay, we need to have blind verification now. And I think oh, I think it really got the discussion going about what is independent verification. Right. right. Um, this was all, this is all, also always stood out to me and something I remember back from 2004, that there, there essentially was a culture at the FBI in that time and for many decades before that really didn't allow for disagreements between examiners that it often came down to this 
culture of we don't disagree any you know these statements were so prevalent at that time if you've got two competent examiners who are relatively trained to competency and you know same training experience they're always going to reach the same conclusion because it's either him or it's not and you know during these interviews they said look since I've been supervisor from 2001 to 2004, we had zero disagreements. <laughs> zero. That's that's pretty telling because, I mean, I think about, you know, just the examiners I work with in a year, we'll have dozens <laughs> of disagreements. Right. And it's always on sufficiency. But keep in mind for, you know, a four to five year period, there were zero disagreements about sufficiency during these interviews. Okay. Um one other question was because it was a high profile case was there pressure on it uh i've heard this said before and it makes sense you know the fbi all of their cases are high profile cases <laughs> they always True. deal with high profile <laughs> stuff um i and anything that goes right or wrong for them has the potential to be a high profile case the fact that they came out on the weekend to work this case it was an international case like you you made um, a statement the other episode of what what did you say, you say it was own say ma own say ma yeah yeah um which you know suggests you know this this was may 11th or march 11th for them that was their nine that was their 911 right i mean exactly <sighs> exactly 30 months to the day after 911 so it's it's one of those things where I don't know it's hard to tell if that really could have factored in. I I think the FBI is used to dealing with high profile stuff, but this one might have stood out a little bit as this international case. But whether or not that really had an impact, I kind of doubt it. I I really don't think so. Um, now the last one that is explored, and this one I think you're going to find particularly compelling, which is worth going a little bit longer on this episode, the lack of having an inconclusive conclusion as an option. Did you ever know that, that that was one of the things that they looked at? Oh, I hadn't, um, yeah. I hadn't come across that. Where, where, right. What, what page well, are we on? Let's, let's highlight that for everybody. I, All right, so I'm following along here. I, I believe we're on page 178 uh, of the OIG report. Um, All right. So go ahead. I'm going to read a little quote from this. Yes. Then. So the FBI laboratory's criteria for reaching an inconclusive result apparently precludes such a result in cases as this one, in which both the latent print and issue and the known prints are deemed to be sufficient quality for comparison. In other words, they could only use inconclusive if they needed better knowns. Right. If you say the latent and the, and the known prints are fine, of value, then you have to reach an ID, or essentially at the time ID or non-ident, but ID or an exclusion. Inconclusive was not allowed at that time by the FBI because they were strictly approach one. According to the here, here's the rest of the quote. According to the FBI, examiners interviewed by the OIG, when an FBI examiner is unable to affect an identification or an exclusion, the usual practice is to call it no value. All right, this is where it gets interesting. In the case of a particularly heinous crime and a comparison of a single print in which there are ambiguities, such that the examiner has insufficient confidence to reach a conclusion of identification. This circumstance could create pressure on the examiner to declare an identification when he should not. Fear of failing to identify a terrorist could push an examiner to make a false identification in a close case. 
One possible means of preventing this kind of pressure from pushing the examiner to make borderline IDs would be for the examiner and the laboratory to recognize the option of utilizing the inconclusive category in such cases. It would be different from a no-value determination, which suggests the print wasn't suitable for comparison at all. Now here's the best part. The investigating authorities could then make an informed decision whether to take additional investigatory steps with regard to the potential subject if an inconclusive was issued. So even back then, they were suggesting to the FBI, consider an approach too, because you're putting these examiners in the untenable position of having to make IDs, or you're probably thinking, uh, the more likely thing is not to make the ID, but to make the erroneous exclusion. But I think they were really insightful to say, just say inconclusive and let the investigators figure out what that means. Right. And I think, you know, later on, as they went on and reviewed policies and protocols and changed those and that what ended up happening was was a very very different than that where they essentially just raised their threshold of what to compare to just yes. be higher uh, yes. so that essentially looking at a different part of the oig report saying um you know you're you're, de- you're kind of down in the muck um of a, of a medium to low quality print uh so essentially just when you come across something like this in the future just don't even compare it and then we we won't make this mistake you know different solution to the problem but um uh it is a shame i I think that uh actually you know eventually things uh you know may change and and something like this may be actually adopted by the fbi uh but um yeah, I'm not sure how much further down the road that actually is. Yeah, and to this day, there's still approach one. But I know, having talked to many of these examiners over the years, yes. I know that there are those that consider, you know, maybe there's options here. And this is one of the things I like about the Army Crime Lab is they were also traditional approach one, like all the feds in the United States, the federal agencies. But they did switch to a hybrid approach. And now the Army Crime Lab does allow for an inconclusive conclusion, but only if they first have a consultation with another examiner and then have that verified so that you have at least two other people who go, "Mm, no, you're right, this one doesn't meet the criteria for an ID, but was compared initially. So I, you know, they they do allow for inconclusive, but there are a couple of quality control hoops they have to jump through to report that out. Right, right. All right. So then the um, you're talking about reasons for the uh, for the uh, for the error happening. Uh, and we kind of touched on it earlier, but uh, just to reemphasize the point, Mayfield's religion, you know, from the OIG report, you know, essentially they kind of have this in the in between category where. No, it wasn't uh, the main factor of the initial error. Was it a factor in how confident they were in the decision after the Negativa report came out? Who knows? And then for the uh, the actual agents who started monitoring Mayfield, you know, maybe that's a factor. But um, what, what did they list out as things that didn't end up mattering? Well, you know, just along those lines, Eric, let's explore that. Because you're right, the the... Mayfield's religion and his background was not a factor. 
So let's talk about bias a little bit because, okay. of course, this is always used as the poster child of bias. Right. So where is it? Where is the bias? Because I think it's there, but I'm just let me throw that to you. Where do you, where do you actually see bias having an impact in this case, if not mm. his religion? I, I think okay. So I think the bias uh, would come from that culture of no, we've never had a disagreement. Um, okay. Uh, so that that's expectation bias then, right? Um, uh, the whole idea of well, no, I know him. He's good. He wouldn't make a mistake. Uh, and that you know, following all the way down to the to the defense uh, expert that was looking at this. Okay, sure. Uh, now he he admitted himself to having some contextual bias because at that time Moses did know case details when it was presented to him. So he had the expectation bias of knowing the FBI and always knowing that uh, under the assumption that if you present me an ID from the FBI, it's going to be an accurate ID. But he, he also at that time had some case details. And if anything, bias plays into the propagation and certainly plays into Moses's considerations, which he talked about in 2004, not so much in the Frontline episode. <laughs> but in 2004, that's exactly what he talked about. And that makes sense to me. That, and, and I remember this from a news report at the time, too, when the OIG came out, that the 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 culture at the time was such that once the initial examiner made the identification it became increasingly difficult for subsequent examiners to disagree along the line and to me that's the bias part and it really reflects more of the non-independence of the verification and less about mayfield's background right right where you don't want to be the the guy that disagrees, right? Because you're looking around yeah. and you say, okay, no one ever disagrees. That means I'm not allowed to disagree. Um, yeah. And what's going to happen to me if I do disagree? Um, and that essentially, in their mind, outweighing at the time, the question of, well, what happens if we're all wrong? Um, because that wasn't really regarded as even a possibility. Right. Right, exactly. Okay, so any of the other things that did not contribute to talk about real fast here? I'm trying to wrap things up towards the end. Um, one of the things that came out at SwigFast, and I remember these discussions, were not having access to the original evidence. I remember examiners from the FBI saying, if we had seen the original evidence, especially when we went over there several times, if we had seen the original evidence, we wouldn't have made this mistake. The OIG rejected that. They said, no, it wouldn't have mattered. The FBI was saying at the time, if they could have seen the original evidence, they would have realized some simultaneity between, or possible simultaneity, right. between latent fingerprints 17 and 20, which were identified to Daoud. And they would have realized, oh, there's simultaneity, and then they would have not have made that, or at least had pause for making the uh, Mayfield identification. I... I frankly agree with the OIG report. I reject that notion. I think the FBI at that time had not admitted the mistake and were still trying to find their out. And I think saying that, see if we had had the original evidence. And in fact, I remember that part of the Swigfast talk saying the FBI is thinking now about never doing any examinations unless we have access to the original evidence. And the OIG says, no, that's not, that wasn't the issue here. That 
it can sometimes help, but in this case, it really wasn't a factor. And I, I kind of, I kind of side with them on that. Now, um, you know, oh, along yeah, with ahead. that is, is the concept of, um, of what I've heard before is that the image didn't have a scale, right? And it wasn't above a thousand PPI or some, it wasn't a high resolution, you know, image. Uh, but you said yep, after, that's... after they got those high resolution images, you could see that some of the, these ridges connecting where the original oh. just looked like they stopped and it was a break. Right. What do you, yeah, let me, let me, let me clarify. Okay. Okay. So the original images that were sent to the FBI were exactly that. They, they, I, I think you're right. I think they lacked the scale and they didn't have they, – they weren't 1,000 PPI for sure because they rejected them. They said, no, nope, they're not enough. And so they came back with higher quality images that did meet that. I think they were 1,200 or 1,400 PPI. So they were fine from a digital resolution quality and they were fine for comparison. They're the images that everybody saw. It wasn't until they went back to Spain, I think that third time, that they saw, for the first time, they were seeing silver halide photographs, you know, printed photographs, real photographs, not digital photographs, but printed photographs from, you know, old film paper, film negatives, and went, oh, yeah, there's a little bit clear in this area would that have made a difference no because the the differences were there the similarities were there it it you know it it of course would have been nicer to have had those images <laughs> right but you could still reach an accurate conclusion from the digital images that were over a thousand so that's why the oig report says it wasn't image quality Got it. right uh the third thing was failure to detect interruptions in the ridge flow um, that, that's interesting. The the OIG report has these images of some of the FBI markings where they're showing all these breaks and lines of demarcation throughout the ridges. And <laughs> I so don't forth. know what they're looking at here. Okay, you you see that? That looks like Blair Witch Project <laughs> ruins or something. This is page one eighty six. If you're yes. if you're following along here, yeah, I go. I mean because there's other there's like much more obvious bigger breaks in the ridge flow that aren't marked <laughs> so i don't know what they're going for here yeah this again wasn't when i think they're in their no value phase that weaning out here and see you can't trust any of this information at this point and again i remember those comments being said at Swigfast, where that's exactly what they were saying that we can't trust any of this everything's all wonky and we're we should never have even started comparing these prints Okay, the yeah, and that that leads us to the fourth thing was that the OIG rejected this whole no value thing, and they I think they cut them some slack, and they said, "What do you expect? It's it's understandable that they're that that might have been their only out at this point because they didn't have inconclusive. They had had inconclusive, they might have just been able to drop back and say inconclusive, right, right, and that's uh, the fit. Oh, go ahead. Well, it's just sad that they're still there. They're still in that place where. Where if they co- they go if they say eh, inconclusive, they really can't. So they have to say no value, uh, or they begin a comparison and kind of see if if they're going to find any similarities. And if basically nothing lines up at all, uh, then they're and it's a borderline one. Then they'll say no value. But if starts some stuff starts to beginning to line up, then they'll say it's a value and complete uh, the comparison. Um, so it, it's it, that's one thing where it's kind of 
disappointed that they ha- still haven't really addressed that part of the issue. Right. Uh, the fifth thing is excessive faith in the APHIS, which we already discussed. That that really wasn't, and and it, that really wasn't a contributing factor. And the, what the report talks about is, like you said, it's not. It it's that they understood that IAFIS does not make the match for them. That it's not like on TV that just because this person comes up, you know, the report says, hey, he was the number four candidate, you know. So it wasn't like he was the top candidate and the computer said match, match, match. They used IAFIS as a tool and they understood that they were the ones making the match. Right. But I think I think like you pointed out earlier they may not have understood the risks, the inherent risks of using IAFIS at that time. And certainly now, 11 years later, as that database has just grown unbelievably. And then the last thing was that the verifier, this is a weird thing, but it's in there, that the verifier had made previous errors. These errors were made back in his 10 print days. So they were literally something like, you know, 30 years prior to this, when the person was up in temperance, he had misclassified a couple. And the the report talks about how pretty much all the examiners were doing, you know, thousands and thousands of comparisons daily, weekly, etc. And that occasionally cards would get misfiled. And they, they kept track of how often these things would happen. But an examiner might misclassify something and then, you know, make essentially what it will result result in a misclassification of a, of a temperate card or a, a wrong association which would be caught very quickly given the temperate nature of it so these things were tracked and this person had a couple of those back in their day but never as a latent print examiner so it had come out in the media this person you know had made several errors in their past before and was still working cases and you know the oig report dismissed that completely this person was competent and made and made a mistake in this case for all these other reasons. Right. Uh, all right, Glenn. Uh, why, don't you, why don't we start wrapping this one up? I know we're extra long here, but I definitely think it was worth it. Uh, why don't you give us a couple uh, closing thoughts? Well, I, you know, I I'm glad we were able to visit this. I do think this is one of the most important events in our profession. Oh, absolutely. That you know, I I look at Daubert in 1999 as a turning point for this profession. This case, just a few years later, had to happen to the FBI because prior to that point, any erroneous ID, frankly, the FBI would comment at the time and go, well, here's a case, because they were often brought into it. They they were often brought into erroneous IDs to take a look at it and offer an opinion and typically defaulted to, well, here's a case of examiners not knowing what they're doing and not being properly trained. This had to happen to the FBI. It had to happen to them because it made everybody stop and go, if it could happen to them, it could happen to us, and it woke everybody up. And I think that that's a great thing. And all the changes that came after that from the FBI, which I'll, I'll visit in a moment, were incredible. Great changes that happened to them. And then, of course, the third thing being the NAS report, which this featured prominently in that report. Yeah. You've taught at the FBI. I've taught there since Mayfield. We both got to teach there because of Mayfield. We <laughs> yeah. never would have been teaching there had Mayfield not happened. The changes that happened there and their recognition of, yep, we made a mistake and we're going to improve, they did. You know, Are there still other things they can look at? Sure. Right. But the improvements, the research that has come out of this is incredible. 
all of these things came into place because that mistake happened. They changed policies, they changed approaches, they changed their message, they critically reviewed what they were doing, made improvements, did all this fantastic research, and we have all benefited from that. And I can tell you that the examiners there today are a very different breed than just 10 years ago and certainly than 20 years ago, and they are bright, energetic, smart, smart people who are doing lots and lots of casework and being being forced into losing some of that some of that uh, and you saw that when you were there that <laughs> that you take the brightest minds and then you just make them do you know routine stuff over and over and over. <laughs> no, you're right. They are they are really are uh, um, very different than what you know stories from back in the day that I had heard. Um, yes, and and you're right. This did none of this none of the changes would have come about if not for it happening to the FBI. I mean, all you have to do is look at the 1995 CTS test for proof of that. You know, this big error that so many people made, but it wasn't linked back to the FBI. So everybody at the time was like, oh, it's people who aren't trained or it's people who, I don't know, not even F, you know an examiner, just some random college student from Africa that signed up to take the test because who knows who signs up to take these CTS tests. And it was just kind of all brushed off and... and right. Well, all these explanations came out as to you know why it could have happened, but with this very clearly coming from the FBI, yeah, that is what shook things up and and led to all these changes and improvements and and real growth in our field. And uh, yeah. it always makes me wonder when it's going to happen to the next forensic discipline. You know, what's going to be mm. their Mayfield moment yeah. that causes a real shakeup, but growth uh in the field as well so yeah that's a great point i i actually think more change came out of the mayfield case than the nas report oh yeah frankly i mean um now oig stuff coming uh, we'll see down the road but i i feel that real change real product happened to the profession because of mayfield more than any other thing and and so hey i think we should end this with thank you fbi um (laughs) it it probably sucked for you guys, and if any people involved listening were involved in that in some way, it probably sucked really hard. But, again, congratulations and kudos to you guys for having come so far and done so much for everybody. Thank you for going through that crap storm. Well, thank you for taking a bad situation and making sure that something good came out of it. Uh, yeah, definitely. Which is the, really what you what you want from a bad situation, because you can't always prevent bad situations, but you can hope that that good things come out of it. So, absolutely. All yes. Right. All right. Well, uh, please write into us if you uh, if you're at the FBI or if you uh, you know, have any additional thoughts wherever you work about this case. Write into us, Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or to Eric at rayforensics.com. Uh, it's been great uh, talking about uh, Mayfield for a um, good portion of the evening here. And, you know, obviously, you guys are listening over the course of a few weeks, but I uh, hope you're enjoying it as well. Uh, listen to us every week on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Music provided on this podcast by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com.